So welcome everybody to episode 33 of Level Up, 60 minutes of live Q&A where your questions really do drive the show. The Slido link in the chat will allow you to vote up the questions that you would most like answered and of course to add your own which you can do at any time during the event. Today we're talking all about cyber resilience and in particular the areas about data protection and also the trends in data privacy as more of us look to protect our own personally identifiable information. So let's jump straight in and meet our panel for today. I'm delighted to welcome Lynette Kelly, who joins us on the panel for her first um, uh, appearance. Lynette is the Data Protection Officer here at APMG and acts as our trusted advisor to the business as we control and process a wide variety of data from all over the world, really. So welcome, Lynette. Great to have you. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Like Nick says, I am the Data Protection Officer for APMG. I've been working there for about 18 years now, previously in a project governance role. So this fits very nicely into that. So thank you, Nick. Absolutely. And thank you very much for, for doing it. Because, you know, when we're, when we're asked these specific, you know, different bits of guidance from different people around the world, it's super helpful, you know, to have the, uh, you know, um, you to be able to call upon and, and get clear advice. So thank you, Lynette. Um, Subject Bose is the owner and director at Cyber Services in Singapore. He's a regular contributor to the panel and advises organisations on a wide variety of different cyber resilience tools, techniques and practices. So welcome back, Subject. Great to see you. Thank you so much, Nick, and all the panellists. And um, well, data privacy is something around the region that I am here in Singapore. We are one of the leaders, uh, even though we follow the EU as well, uh, but something which has come up and it is very, very important and critical. And this year we have some upgrades and uh, with the COVID-19 things have become more critical. So I guess that is something happening. Thank you. Okay, all right. Thank you very much, Sabajit. We'll dive more into that in a few minutes. Darren Conway joins us for his second appearance on Level Up. He's the Cyber Security Solutions Manager at Capilla. Um, he's an executive who's worked on critical national infrastructure. He's worked with government, private sector clients, and so on across 33 countries now. So welcome back, Darren. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I work a lot with incident management programs, risk management programs, and data protection is certainly a, a big focus area. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Gary, Gary Hibbard, he joins us on the panel for his first um, session today. Gary's a consultant with CyberFort Group who help organizations create awesome cyber capability um and he also devotes some time and where he finds it gary <laughs> super busy to the yorkshire cyber security cluster um, which is contributing to the cyber health of the yorkshire region it's got approaching 700 members now um so it's really going strong so welcome gary great to see you thanks very much no great to see everyone and uh, like everyone else i've been involved in this for quite some time uh, very much a, a consultant working with organizations implementing cybersecurity and information governance frameworks. Um, I remember 20 plus years ago, somebody coming along to me um, when I worked in the IT department and handing me the Data Protection Act and saying, you seem to enjoy this kind of stuff. Um, can you help us um, make sure we're doing the right thing? So uh, I've been. it seems I've been doing the same thing for the last 20 plus years. So, uh, yeah. 
it's it's great to be able to come and and, uh, and talk to you about it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And we'll pick your brains um, over that experience in the next 60 minutes. Nigel Mercer is the regional manager for APMG. He works across Africa and also North America. His background is in IT operations. So he's seen this kind of challenge from both sides of the fence, if you like. And he's faced the very real world problems of meeting business demands whilst keeping data safe and secure. So welcome, Nigel. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. I have a, a quite a strong technical background, and as you say, I've seen it from both sides of the fence. So let's see if we can provide some meaningful answers for our panel today. All right, excellent. Thank you very much. Now, if you're watching this and you could, you're feeling that actually you could answer some of the questions, then please do just volunteer in the chat, and one of the team will be in touch with you to welcome you on to welcome you onto a future panel. So completing our group today is Charlotte, who is going to act as our question master for today. And she joins us from the Thames Valley here in the UK. So Charlotte, please may we have the first question, please. You can, Nick. So the first question that we have is from Tim at Atlanta, USA. We're worried about security in the cloud. How can we ensure that our data is safe? Okay, Sarbajit. because cloud is something that is uh, becoming more and more critical and more and more important these days. And, um, well, many people are thinking when I'm uploading my data in the cloud, will that be safe? Now, well, there can be apprehensions and things have happened. Not that the data in cloud is very unsafe. Data can be unsafe even in your own premises. So we need to make our cloud secure by first starting to do the job right from the very beginning, selecting the right provider, knowing my requirement, what I need, and then and then ensuring that I have a proper architecture design for my security and how is my data moving. And also I have to uh, do my own things like the data, uh, you know, classification and also do the other things that a data privacy checklist would tell us to do or any guideline would tell us to do. So there are multiple means and methodologies and frameworks available to make data secured in the cloud. And uh, today more and more providers are also complying to the data sovereignty and data privacy laws. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, um, uh, Sabajit. Nigel, and then we'll go to Darren. Yeah, thanks. Just to to carry on from what Sabajit was saying there, I think one of the most important things that you can do is take a look at the contracts that you have with your cloud provider. The contract will spell out quite a few of the different aspects that they are responsible for and the bits that you are responsible for. I've seen many, many customers get, you know, actually into a really, really bad state with their cybersecurity because they expected that their provider was going to be doing something when, in fact, contractually they weren't obliged to do it at all. So just something that they need to be really careful of. Thank you very much indeed. Darren, your thoughts? Yeah, so exactly that. Um, there, You can find the cloud security shared responsibility models um, that that are offered by the providers. And depending on whether you're doing um, a platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, there's different shared res- security responsibility models for those different architectures. And it's, it's really important that you understand what it is that 
um, they take responsibility for and then what you need to focus on. Okay, thank you. And Gary, in your experience? Yeah, I think it's been said in a number of ways that it's important to understand what your provider is uh, is giving you. You cannot outsource the risk, so you always own the risk. And it's always worth remembering that cloud just simply means somebody else's computer. Now, I know that sounds like a cliche these days, but it's a cliche because it's true. So um, doing your due diligence on your cloud provider, I think, is really important and understanding um, what data you have uh, and where it is, I think, is, is the first step in, uh, in really being, being safe. As the question says, how can we ensure that our data is safe? You cannot protect what you don't understand. So understanding what data you have and where it lives and who has access to it. So that architecture that Abhijit said at the outset, I think, is really important. But know your provider and, um, and do your due diligence. I think that's the first step when you're choosing a cloud provider. Some really good advice there. And I would say in a hybrid world where we've got a lot of different um, providers that we're working with, you know, somebody might be providing a small business with a CRM. Somebody else might be providing, um, you know, an application that we use in order to be able to execute our business and so on. Um, thinking all of that through and what those data flows are likely to be and having answers for your customers, you know, about whereabouts their data is going and how you went about selecting that provider and why it all works in the way that it does is a super helpful, you know, kind of thing to think through. And it will really, you know, galvanize, if you like, your thoughts on how best to go about managing and protecting that information. Very good. Thank you very much, panel. Great question to get us underway. So, um, Charlotte, if we can, let's move on. We'll take the next question, please. Thanks, Nick. We have a question from Hans in Utrecht. Is there a good strategy to help identify security risks? Okay, so what, how would you go about identifying security risks? Lynette, we'll start with you and then we'll come to Sarbajit next. Um, thanks. I think um, each organisation will act, work differently. So there are different frameworks out there. There are different risk frameworks. You know, you can follow the management of risk framework or the ISO framework for risk. So I think it's important to identify which works for your individual business and, and work with that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, one size does not fit all. There's lots of different things that you can kind of choose from. So sitting down and spending a bit of time on that and figuring out, you know, what's going to be important for your business is super helpful. And um, let's hear from Sabajit and then we'll go to Gary. Hi. Thank you, Lynette, for that. Um, yes, absolutely true. Now, what I'm trying to say here is if you have to, Secure, I mean, understand the security risk. You have to know what is, what are you protecting, what your assets are, and what are the threats to that. Then you will know the security, the risk, and then a strategy will be first to find out that where are those coming from, how is my risk appetite of my management of my organization, and then decide the framework and decide because you say good strategy. Strategy means a long-term plan how you manage your risk and help to identify so once you know what you have then you know how to protect thank you okay thank you and carrie 
Yeah, again, just it almost echoes the previous answer to some degree. You can't protect what you don't understand. And as Sarbajit had said there, if you have your an understanding of what your assets are, you can understand what um, you can understand how you can identify security risks to it. In a practical sense, the way that I get boards and organisations to think about this is putting aside lots of the frameworks that Annette mentioned earlier, um, which are absolutely great, and she's absolutely right to mention them, is uh, is to get people to focus on the five Ps. So it's the, the people risks, it's the processes, it's the premises, it's the PCs or systems, and then it's the providers. So I, I get people to sit and think in those terms. Uh, I sit around the board table and... Um, Forcing your IT function to start thinking about people risks is sometimes quite alien to them. Um, equally, is it's quite alien sometimes for the uh, operations to start thinking about PCs and system risks. But by doing that, a strategy of being um, inclusive around the table rather than just purely focusing on technical cyber risk, which is a, you know a traditional thing that we do. I think uh, really does, it, it opens up so many different avenues. Another very simple practical advice as well I give when I stand in front of a board uh, is I will ask them what their objectives are and what their missions are. Rather than say, what are the risks to this business? I'll ask them, what what are your objectives for the next uh, six months, three years, five years? And then just say, what would stop you from doing that and stop you from achieving those things? And they are the risks, you know, we can't do this because of this. Well, that's your risk. Um, so some practical things you can do, um, you know, to help you identify security risks there. Thank you very much indeed. Nigel, closing thoughts on this one? Yeah, very briefly. I think some of the frameworks that are out there, they definitely will help you identify some of the risks, by really by not by identifying the actual risks, but by pointing out areas that you should look at. So if you take a look at the ISO 27000 framework, there's a lot in there about identifying risk, but there's also a lot in the COVID control framework. So take a look in both of those. And unfortunately, the question isn't really clear on how large the organization is, because you would probably apply a different strategy depending on what size it is. Thanks. Yes, yeah, it's certainly true that whatever approach that you take needs to scale and it needs to be right sized. You know, somebody who's at the smaller end of the SME market, they take a very different kind of approach to, you know, people who are a multi-site, multi or even multi-country type organisation. So very good. Thank you very much indeed. Charlotte, let's move on. We'll take the next question, please. We've got a question from, I think it might be you, Nick. Um, in the panel's opinion, is it better to focus on people and how they work or on technology to reduce cyber risk? Lynette, go ahead. Okay, I think in my experience, you can't focus on one without the other. You can put in the best technology, um, but if your people aren't trained and aren't following processes, then it's ineffective. So I think it's really important that you include your people, you train them, you have discussions to find out the way they work so that you can best implement um, a process that's secure but also works for them. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Lynette. Uh, Gary and then Sarbajit. Yeah, again, Lynette said it absolutely right. Um, you, you cannot do one without the other. You have to make sure that you take uh, equal account of both 
Um, we need to remember that technology is merely the vehicle that moves things around. Um, and my analogy that I often give is that it's like road safety. If you just build safer cars, does that mean that we're going to have safer roads? It, it, no, we need to train people on how to use those vehicles properly. Um, and we've got to remember that there's a lot of um, you know, a lot of data. We our behaviours, our emotions come into into play quite often. Um, if, in fact, if not all the time, when it comes to using devices and such. So the technology can be ultra secure. We patch our technical firewalls, but what about our human firewalls? You know, we're not patching those appropriately if we forget them. So we absolutely need to to look at both. Um, if, if to answer the question pointedly, it is is it better to focus on people and how they work? If I had to do one, I would focus on people, and then the technology hopefully would um, uh, you know would look take care of itself to some degree. But yeah, to answer that question, focus on people. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Sabajit, and then we'll hear from Darren. Thank you. Well, what Gary said, I would uh, agree because technology we have today. And uh, we can spend a lot of money on it, but people is something which is critical to our success. Now, we know in information security, we say that security is as strong as the weakest link. And today, we, the people, are the weakest link. And if we look into all the uh, cyber crimes that is happening and all the, uh, you know, breach breaches that has happened, we would see that always it's the people who fell. And because of that, the organization was actually attacked. The technology fell after that. Okay, thank you. Thank uh, you. Nigel? Uh, yeah, just, I think just to add to this, what everybody said, absolutely right, both people, you know, and technology, but I would also add looking at external threats. I know those can fall into both categories, but kind of look at them separately. What's the trending happening in the world today with cyber threats? So keep an, keep an eye on that as well. Okay, thank you. Hey, Gary, you wanted to just jump in and add something. Yeah, I think it's just this, this point as well about we need to remember when we talk about um, data breaches and incidents and such, uh, I often say, look, if you do a root cause analysis, and we all often asked to do that after a major incident. I often say even where a system has failed, quite often if you go far enough back, you'll find a, a human at some point. And whether that's because the coding, um, you know, something hasn't been coded properly or because someone didn't patch something or because someone pressed the button B rather than the button A to do something, there is a person involved at some point in the chain. And um, this is one of the reasons why I often say, look, you know, technology will take care of itself, but um, we need to just think about the fact that we are humans interacting with, you know, this digital space. So the human side of this is, I think, an area that we still, we haven't really tapped into um, enough yet. Um, it's certainly being done in certain places, but I think we need to more focus on the human side of things. I'd agree with that. I, th I think one of the challenges is, um, you know, working with organisations who have, you know, high profiles, um, you know, high uh, reputational risk, you know, around data loss and, and these sorts of concerns. And um, there is a degree of emotional reluctance to admit that 
you know, people make mistakes and, mm. and people don't follow the guidance and people don't actually, you know, um, look after things in the way that you would want them to. And, and that kind of prompts organizations to spend more money injecting even more software into the veins of their um, <laughs> of their networks and their servers and their you know security systems and so on and so on and, and there's a there's a limit point I think to that you know you have to have this blend of the emotional um, uh, insight to be able to think and say you know how can I help my people perform better if you like our teams to perform better at the same time as the rational that says you know let's lock things down tighter and uh, keep keep the, the the baddies out and and the good guys kind of in firmly in control so um let's move on if we may because the questions are kind of stacking up a little bit and uh, so we might come back to that point in a few minutes Gary but um Charlotte let's take the next question please We've got a question from Sean in Seattle. How do you define what business critical data actually is? Okay, Darren, go ahead. Um, I like I like looking back at the business objectives. Um, you know, when when you're doing uh, risk assessment, you know, ultimately you're trying to not only look at again what are your assets and your data assets, but what is the impact of those on the business um, and uh, it, it, it's also what are the threats to that um, and and how sophisticated are the threats to that um, and then you know we're, we're always trying to <clears throat> build scenarios um, different attack scenarios that we can then build incident response around and things like that um, but but you know it's I think it's a combination of the impact on the business um, you know who are threat actors how sophisticated are they uh, and it's it's those types of things that go into um, the scenario building in my opinion thank you thank you very good so is it hi uh, well well of course what Darren says absolutely um, spot-on but I would say that um, to do it we will need to do a classification of data that means which is based on the criticality and the you know the severity of those data that the management and the organization by its laws and policies and processes have defined to be absolutely you know must have absolutely critical for the organization and even sometimes the regulations like privacy you know privacy data and all these things when you identify them and if you really think that these things are hindering or these things uh, your business will get hindered if these things are not protected there's that is your business critical data and then you move on from there thank you okay all right thank you very much indeed uh, great answers and a great question so look if you're watching this online and you're thinking you'd really like to be a panelist just just make a comment in the chat and we'll pick that up and, and we'll bring you in for a future episode. Um, Charlotte, I think we've got time for one more question and then we'll move into the focus topic itself. Thank you, Nick. We've got a question from Dave in the UK. How can we protect sensitive information handled and stored by third-party vendors? Okay, so to, so to a certain extent, this is kind of linked back to that cloud conversation that we're having a little earlier. Um, Nigel, go ahead, and then Gary. Yeah, just very briefly, once again, look at the SLAs and OLAs that you've got in place with your providers. Yeah? And again, you need to read those really, really carefully and cor correlate them to the applicable legislation that's out there. 
Okay, thank you very much, Gary. Yeah, again, to underpin that exactly what we, we was just saying there, and Nigel, in terms of ensuring you understand uh, that data exchange. So um, uh, setting some your own parameters, your own rules around what information you can share with uh, external parties, your third party providers and vendors, making sure you've done that due diligence and you check the contracts and that you, you have a right to audit as well. Look for you know, due diligence just isn't a, a one-stop shop. It's an ongoing process. There should be regular reviews and having the right to audit these <coughs> organizations, depending upon the size, obviously, and who they are, but um, making sure that you uh, uh, you recognize, again, you cannot outsource the risk and that you, you have a, a duty of care on that data. And, um, and doing that due diligence and ongoing audits is really important. Thank you very much indeed. So um, great answers uh, there for you. If you're working with third party providers anywhere in your value chain of either managing, processing or storing, you know, or maintaining that information. So very good. So um, what we're going to do now is we're going to change gears a little bit. I'm going to invite Darren Conway to join me for the focus topic as we begin to think about um, what's happened over the last four years, because it was four years ago that about this time of year, we were preparing for the introduction of a common set of uh, regulations coming into law um, across Europe. There were the general data protection regulations or GDPR. And since that time, a huge amount, of course, has changed. The level of threat has increased dramatically during the pandemic and individual citizens have also begun to push back on having their personal data exploited for profit by others. So all of this combines and it's brought more pressure on organisations to do the right thing wherever they happen to be in the world. So, Darren, if I may, let's begin with that wider perspective and just talk a little bit about the approach that's being taken in other countries. Which countries would you say have shown real thought leadership in, in the area of data protection? Well, so I think that the GDPR is is a perhaps the the shiningest star in the sky right now. There's a number of different um countries that have implemented simpler, or sorry, uh, similar measures. Um, and um, Europe has um, kind of accepted some of the, those other frameworks. I, I can think of, uh, for instance, Japan, Canada, um, New Zealand, there's, there's some. Um, it, what's interesting, um, so as we talk about uh, data protection, um, confidentiality, Confidentiality and integrity are, you know, two of the three main cornerstones of cybersecurity. And so folks have been looking at that for a long time. But what GDPR does is it really creates a bill of right for um, the users who are sharing their um, uh, their data and and um, put some teeth into the fact that organizations need to protect that. Um, so it's it's a little bit different focus as opposed to looking at our uh, corporate intellectual property. It's it's now actually changed the focus to the folks that we're interacting with. Um, the, the U.S. Um, for quite some time has had uh, regulations like HIPAA and um, GLBA, which protect financial data and health information. Right. Um, and in California, it's got some strong regulations they've just done, uh, but the U.S. Are, are doing it more on a state by state. So it's, it's a bit more confusing. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And and I think we're right to look at things in different geographies in different ways. So um, in my experience, Californian uh, data protection you know, legislation is, is, is right up there as well. And that equivalence that the European Union has granted to other countries' approaches is super important. It's particularly important in the UK as we, as we mm-hmm. decided to leave the European Union. We really need that equivalence to be able to function as a, largely a services economy. We're a services economy in my country, so you know, it's pretty important for us to be able to you know, make all of that work. So um, one kind of aspect of making things work is, is the sort of quoted mantra that kind of somehow or another that the internet is beyond the jurisdiction, you know, of individual governments. And when somebody actually develops a web application or maybe an app for a phone or something like that, is that is that actually governed by GDPR regulation? Um, I guess it's, it is the focus of who it is that you're targeting. Um, so in, initially, what are you collecting from different individuals? And then are you targeting EU citizens or are you collecting um, data from EU citizens, and then uh, also, are you processing? Um, uh, so, for the folks who do analytics and and things like that, um, all of those folks would be um, uh, fall under compliance for the regulation. Right, right, and and that makes complete sense to me because, you know, ultimately, whoever the regulator is, they're regulating. Um, a territory they're regulating the impact on an audience on a group of individuals so if the regulator in is in you know is focused on europe then anything that affects that uh, audience if you like that group of people those european citizens is going to come under you know um, their jurisdiction so that makes some some sense now um within then let's just drill down a little bit further and think about the specifics of within that European Union regulatory framework. What exactly is a data protection impact analysis and when might you need to perform one? <clears throat> well, so um, it's it's really part of a process. Um, so it, it's something that um, you'll probably periodically uh, be doing updates yeah. on. Um, but um, it, it, it's a it's a legal requirement, first of all, that you do it. Um, if you think about it as a as a risk assessment, um, you need to identify not only what type of data are you collecting and processing, um, but how is it that you're securing that data at rest? How are you securing that data in transit? Um, you need to make sure that the folks who are responsible for the security of that understand their different roles and responsibilities. You need to uh, audit the fact that, that your controls are adequate. Um, and, and when we talk about it, adequate controls, again, what you're trying to ensure is that um, the if there was to be a breach of the data, um, it, it um, you'll be liable if you impact um, the rights and freedoms of uh, the different individuals whose um, data you've collected or could you know harm them or effectively their um, uh, their uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of uh, the, the individuals and, and their reputations and things like that. Right, right. Understand, understand. So. Um, Let's flip the coin now and look at it from that individual's perspective, because I think that's really who 
the uh, legislators had in mind, you know, to re-tip the balance back again. So when I'm thinking about, you know, my own data, whether it be, you know, what I, which adverts I find interesting or, you know, what articles I read, you know, um, on a news website or something like this. And increasingly, you know, I, I began to watch patterns of being um, advertised to a variety of different, you know, kind of products and things. So what would be some examples of technology that might help me to kind of improve my privacy online? Uh, so there's actually a classification for those. Those are privacy enhancing technologies and 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 behaviors as well. Um, so I guess from a technology perspective, there are services out there such as virtual private networks that you can um, procure as a service to um, uh, anomalize your traffic. Um, a lot of people do that um, for different reasons, but there are definitely valid reasons why you might want to do that. Um, certainly, there are configuration settings within, uh, for instance, your browser, where you can um, look at um, the types of cookies that you accept when you're interacting with the website. So there's there are some cookies that will fall um, as being functional and, and make the uh, web application work more seamlessly uh, for you and, and whatnot and enhance the browsing experience. And then there's also the cookies that are more targeted for advertising. And um, you're able to control which of those different cookies you accept. And, you know, a lot of times we just click right through, you know, accept, accept, accept. Um, there, there's a number of websites now that are actually giving you the option um, to, you know, accept the functional cookies and make a choice on the advertising cookies. And then the browsers are actually kind of um, strengthening their measures to, to protect against that. But nobody wants to get um, an advertisement for a pair of shoes that they bought two weeks ago and keep seeing the advertisements <laughs> come up and whatnot. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. I understand that. And I, and I think what's encouraging really is, that uh, you know, for a lot of us, we we interact with content so much through our, our phones. So you know, there are movements now, aren't there, in the operating systems on on mobile devices as well to be able to kind of help us out mm -hmm. there. So I really welcome that because in time, you know, I think it will lead to a a more balanced you know experience between ease ease of use and also you know, just being bombarded with uh, with this kind of thing. So so lastly, just flipping back to the organisational side one last time before we go back to the panel, if you had a single kind of top tip, um, Darren, you know, to share with somebody who's sitting, being asked to either review an update or maybe even author a data privacy policy, um, from the organization's perspective, you know, if they're running a website, they've got a, an e-commerce store or something like that, you know, or some other aspect of their business. And what would that top tip be to consider when you're updating that data privacy policy? It needs to be human readable. So we need to make sure that, um, you know, it's, it's not legal speak, that it's human readable, that people understand what's being collected, 
what you're going to do with it, how long that data is going to be retained, and how you can get in touch with the organization um, as it relates to the right um, to deletion and whatnot. So it didn't, you need to be open with the with folks. You need to make it easy to understand and easy to contact you. Excellent. And I'm all for that. Plain English would be really mm -hmm. great. Or plain just, local language. Yep, it doesn't really matter what the language English. is. Just make it straightforward mm -hmm. and easy to understand. Thank you so much, Darren. Really, really interesting and really appreciate, you know, your thoughts today. And thank you for sharing them with the community. So, um, Charlotte, I can see that there are new questions coming in from the live audience and others um, already on the focus topic. So let's take the first question, please. Thanks, Nigel. Um, oh, the questions have not changed over. There we go. Sorry. Question from Dave in the UK. How often do we need to update our privacy policies and notices? Okay, so frequency of updates. Um, Sarbajit, super brief, and then we'll go to Gary. Right. Um, well, it is uh, important that we do um, the updates of this privacy policy, at least once a year reviewed and see what the impact going around and how things have the business requirements may have changed and if there is any legislation or regulation change happening in your country or something that impacts your business that may be a global like gdpr and others then you would want to do one more time perhaps because that will help you to be compliant and reduce your risk thank you Okay, thank you very much. Gary and then Lynette. Yeah, again, Sabjit said it extremely well. Um, on an annual basis, uh, at, at the very least, if there are significant changes that affect your business, and that means internally as well. So if your organization has gone through any restructure or if you've had any mergers or acquisitions, etc., you need to look at your business and uh, consider whether there needs to be any changes to your your own data privacy um, notices and uh, policies. Thank you very much, Lynette. When do you when do you go into hibernation to do all of this kind of thing? <laughs> no, I think um, the guys um, covered all that. But also, um, if you change um, your purpose for processing, if you take mm. on any new processing activities, any new third party processes, then you should update um, your privacy policy when that happens rather than wait for the annual review. I, th I think you're absolutely right. It's a really good piece of advice, actually, to share is that, you know, it's kind of, it depends. You know, you should certainly look at it on an annual basis, on a regular basis, whatever that frequency happens to be for, that's right for your business and your right, uh, your regulatory framework. And then also from the perspective of saying, okay, well, look, is this a change? You know, recognize when it's great to win new business and do new stuff and innovate and be agile and all the rest of it. But that might actually mean that you also need to update your um, policies as well. Okay, very good. Um, Charlotte, let's crack on and we'll take the next question, please. Thanks, Nick. We've got a question from a live viewer. What can be done then to reduce human errors? In other words, can we say that people fail due to mandating security requirements? Okay, so uh, Nigel and then Gary. Yeah, very briefly, training. Okay. Training and education is one of the most important things that you can do to try and get your people up to speed with what security risks are. And that doesn't mean put them through a course that they're not going to really benefit from or enjoy. It means give them hands-on training as well. Try to demonstrate the impact 
of some of these breaches to them. Okay? And you can do that in a financial manner by showing them what the impact could be to the company and maybe even to their jobs. So training, training, training. Thank you very much, uh, Gary, and then Darren. Um, okay, this is a topic I could literally talk about all day long. Um, it's uh, Perry Carpenter, uh, a well-known author, um, uh, came out with a re really great statement. Just because I'm aware doesn't mean I care. Um, so we can do all the training, and training is absolutely important, and awareness is always uh, important and such. To answer the question, what can we done, be done that, uh, to reduce human error, actually there's one thing we can all do and we can do it immediately, which is um, slow down. We can, we're, you know, we're, we're digital distraction. We get emails in all the time from six o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, up until midnight. And this is an expectation on some of us to answer those emails at nine o'clock at night, seven o'clock in the morning. Um, that's when we're prone to error. Um, if organizations' leadership started to recognize that actually to reduce errors is if we give people more bandwidth, then there's going to be less errors in code. There's going to be less people making mistakes when you know, they're sending an email. They're not going to send out the wrong documents to the wrong people. They're not going to forget to patch something because we're also expecting them to do training on top of this, on top of their day jobs, da 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 da, -da. Slow down. That's the, the number one thing that I'm now advocating and saying to people. We need to remember the emotion, the human side of cybersecurity really fundamentally. Um, and I, I will stop there, but slow down. That's the number one thing you can do. Really good advice. Thank you very much, Gary. And uh, Darren, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I was thinking that um, in many cases, applications have... Um, the ability to, to, to do input validation as well, and just make sure that what's being inputted into the application is, is valid. Um, we, everyone knows that one of the biggest um, threat actors is an untrained employee. Um, so certainly shadowing and, and more mentoring um, can help as well. And then we just have to assume that um, uh, uh, incidents are going to occur, and so um, we need to be able to do auditing and alerting, and and um, you know, turn tune different um, alerts uh, and events so that we can um, detect incidents as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed, panel. That ongoing kind of coaching, mentoring, supporting, enabling, you know, helping, and so on is really important. One thing that. I would suggest is that, um, and I think it sort of builds on Gary's point, is that practice doesn't always make perfect. Actually, sometimes doing something that's pretty much the same over and over and over again makes us a little bit indifferent. <laughs> we kind of lose some of that focus. So consider using some business rules, some workflow, some um, uh, random sampling, some you know something different, if you like, to be able to combine machine learning with some artificial intelligence with what humans do best which is that sometimes we have a feeling don't we it's almost uncanny it's like a sort of a, an insight almost you know to a listen to that little inner voice and create a culture in which the inner voice is actually listened to so there we go but what a fantastic question thank you very much indeed uh, for putting it to the panel charlotte let's move on we'll take the next question please 
Thanks, Nick. We've got a question from Hans, Utrecht, Netherlands. What should we do if our data is breached? Is there a standard protocol to follow? Okay, Lynette, go ahead and then Darren. Okay, um, I think first of all, you need to conduct a risk assessment. You need to determine what data has been breached, whether it includes personal data, because that will determine your next steps, whether you have to... Um, report it to your local supervisory authority if you're in the EU or the Okay, I think we might have lost um, some audio from Lynette just for a moment. Um, Darren, do you want to pick up and then we'll come back to, um, to Lynette in a moment? Um, yeah, so I, I believe that really um, this question should be answered by your um, incident management program. Um, so when we think about um, an incident management program, you need to be able to prepare for this type of an event. You need to be able to detect uh, that, that potentially a breach has happened. You need to then move into triage to identify how significant is the breach. Um, because not all uh, events are breaches, you know, that it could be um, a technology issue or, or um, something less serious than a breach. Um, but then similar to what Lynette was saying is, you know, then um, if, if in fact you do have a breach, um, ideally your incident management program will have in place um, the, the phone numbers of folks that you need to reach internal and external to your organization, um, uh, thresholds as to whether or not you need to reach out to the folks who may have been subject to that breach. Ultimately, I feel like um, this, as I had said at the beginning, this is a question that should be answered by the scenarios within your incident management program. Okay, thank you very much. And Lynette, I think we just um, lost you halfway through, um, but would you like to kind of finish that off for us? No, I think we're still struggling on, on the audio side, Lynette. So apologies about that. We'll work with you on that in the background and see if we can kind of get you, you back so that we can hear you. Um, so very good. The, the other thing that I would suggest to everybody here is that this is uh, this is something that you can absolutely plan for. You know, you can plan for this kind of event happening and you can think through how best it is that you and your colleagues are going to approach it. And from that perspective, you know, um, be, being prepared is a really good idea. I don't know if you remember in the early days of, you know, some really uncomfortable moments for senior people on the television when there was a data breach and they couldn't answer with what data had been lost and where it might have been lost from and how much of it and was it encrypted or not and these kinds of things very very uncomfortable so there's lots and lots now the good news is other people have had this happen to them so there are some really good case studies to be able to work through as a team and come up with an approach that you know that, that may well work all right okay very good um so charlotte let's take the next question please Thanks, Nigel. Oh, sorry, Nick. I do apologise. Question from Tony in Milan, Italy. We had an accidental data exposure recently. Will ISO two thousand sorry twenty seven thousand help to prevent this in the future? Okay, Gary, and then Sabajit. Uh, simple answer to the question: No, it won't prevent it in the future. Um, uh, there is no such thing as one hundred percent secure. 
uh, ISO 27000, uh, the family of standards, so 27001 being the, um, the actual information security management system and all the other um, uh, standards within that, that family, they will help you create a framework that allow you to be uh, to have confidence that you are addressing all the risks and the issues. Um, there's no certificate on hanging on your wall that's going to prevent this from happening again. Uh, but that's not to say it's not good practice to have that framework in place. Um, and what it demonstrates is that if you have a breach, as I often say, that when your supervisory authority come along after a breach, they will ask three questions. They will want to know what you did to prevent it. What did you do when it happened and what are you going to do to stop it from happening again? That's obviously taking it down very to its base level here. You can demonstrate that you did all things that are reasonable. You took all the reasonable steps to protect data by implementing ISO 27001 or 27005 or, you know, um, uh, you know from a risk assessment perspective. So it, it won't prevent it but it will certainly significantly reduce the likelihood of it happening or the impact of it happening. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Saab Brigitte? All right, I would like to take Gary's words ahead and say that, yeah, I mean, the all these frameworks are good. ISO is absolutely wonderful and um, there are others as well. But the thing is, it's not about what you use, but how you use it. And again, it comes back to our thing about the people because we, the people, are the implementers. If we do our things, our job diligently, then we, because it says accidental data exposure, that means someone somewhere because of ignorance or of any other kind of, uh, you know, less diligence to the work make it happen something went wrong we normally would blame it to the process with the technology yes it is maybe but there's some person behind it so if we address that area a lot of this accidental exposures will go will not be there thank you all right thank you very much some good advice there so i think we've probably got time for one or two more questions if we're a quick panel so charlotte can we take the next question please you can nick we've got a question from james in london uk what's the first step in implementing data protection and data privacy okay all right lynette have a go <laughs> sorry hopefully all okay this time okay absolutely first step is you, um, you have to determine what data you're processing, um, what you're collecting, where you are storing it, who is accessing it, who you're sharing the data with. You can't determine what security you need to put in place and the measures in order to implement data protection until you understand what data you're actually processing. Thank you very much indeed. Great advice. Thank you. Good to have you back loud and clear. Thank you. Uh, Gary next and then Darren. Yeah, again, Lynette's pretty absolutely right. It, you cannot protect what you don't understand. That's exactly what I said earlier. So to keep it brief, that's the first step. You have to understand what it is that you need to protect. Okay, perfect. Darren, is there anything else to add or are we done? Uh, data protection impact analysis, DPIA. Okay. All right, very good. And by the way, panel, if you have any helpful links that you want to share, just 
pop them in the chat and we will add them into the recording afterwards for um, folks who are watching us after the event to be able to follow up on. So um, please do share those with us. So Charlotte, let's take uh, one more question if we can. Thanks, Nick. We've got a question from Howard in Surrey in the UK. What are appropriate measures for securing data? Well, Howard, I think you've been cheeky here because you're answering your own question by putting appropriate inside <laughs> the quotes. Gary, <laughs> what are the appropriate yeah, measures? Absolutely. What are appropriate? It depends. You know, it's that age-old answer, unfortunately. It depends on who you are. What is appropriate to you if you're a, a sole trader or if you're a small organisation that is dealing with um, just, custom, you know, fairly innocuous, simple uh, emails and, and very basic uh, information compared to uh, a multinational organization that is dealing with highly sensitive um, health records, for instance, it's it's what is appropriate, you know, is it okay that a large organization isn't implementing encryption? Well, probably not, and, and we'd say absolutely not. Is it appropriate for a small organization not to be implementing encryption? Well, Maybe it is. Um, it, it genuinely is. Like you know, as you said, I, I think he's answered his own question by putting it in there. What is appropriate? Well, it depends on on you. Okay, very good. And uh, Sabija, anything to add to that? Yeah, as you say, in Singapore, if it's twenty degrees, we feel cold. And some of you at twenty degrees, you are really saying it's so hot today. So same thing, what is appropriate depends on the context, on the people, on a lot of such things. So securing the data, first of all, I have to know what data I'm securing and what kind of organization I am and what are my threats. Who can really inflict something bad on me? So once I know that, then I can select the appropriate measure or as we say, controls. Different kind of controls can be then selected and implemented. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So we're just going to rush now and fit one last uh, live question in that I've just seen uh, come in. So, um, Charlotte, can we take the live question, please? We can, Nick. And we've got a question. What would you say to people blaming technology and process? Okay, Nigel, briefly, please. (laughs) Don't. It's usually not about technology and process. You can put any technology and process in place, but a person will break it. Okay, all right, thank you. Gary, final thoughts on that one? Yeah, again, I said it earlier, that car analogy, the road safety, it's like saying, you know, it's not my fault, it's the, it's the vehicle that, that caused the, the crash. It's, it, there's usually a human sat behind a wheel or there's a, there's a human failing somewhere. So... Um, technology is it's neither good nor evil, it is what it is. So it's not you can't really blame the technology or the process. All right, thank you very much. It's really difficult sometimes to separate us now from the software that we use, from the tools that we use, from the methods that we use, the stories that we use, and so on and so on, you know, as we do our work. So um, I'd like to thank everybody for some brilliant questions. If you've been online today submitting the questions and voting up others, great job. Very well done indeed. And uh, thank you, panel, for some amazing answers. So I'm just going to walk around the panel now for your kind of closing thoughts. If uh, if we can, we're up against the clock a little bit. But, uh, Darren, briefly, your closing thoughts on today, and then we'll come to Gary. Um, 
as it relates to data um, protection, just really focus on <clears throat> risk analysis and and expect something uh, might happen. And um, so so focus on incident response and incident planning response. Thank you very much, Gary, it's, and then Salvage. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pretty good. Thank uh, you. I, I would say um, keep things simple when it comes to security. Complexity will just create problems. Uh, I often say around GDPR, it simply means giving data proper respect. If you remember that, it's about the, the uh, it's about removing complexity and making things easier. Remembering that people have are already busy and overloaded. So uh, keep it simple. That's a really great way to remember that. Really, really good guiding principle. I think we might reuse that one. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Sabashit and then Nigel. Well, uh, we have been talking about that the people are the source, but then again, we cannot beat them. We'll have to be with them and create a very safe environment as we talk about in DevOps and other things so that they can do things and in a proper and better way without this care of being pinpointed, then they will be doing better. Thank you very much indeed, Nigel and Lynette. Yeah, just for, just very briefly, I think one thing that's often overlooked is that the folks that are actually looking at cybersecurity, analyzing it, assessing it, they really, really need to understand the business. And in many cases, they simply don't. You can be a cybersecurity expert in many, many areas, but if you don't understand the business and the data that they're trying to secure, as a result of it, you'll never be successful with it. Okay, thank you very much. Really good point. Very well made. Lynette and then Charlotte. Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, just wanted to say, you know, really learned a lot from all our fellow panelists today. So, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for your real world contribution as well, Lynette. Really nice to have you on the panel. Um, super job. Well done. And uh, Charlotte, your closing remarks? About cybersecurity, I think it's installing the smoke detectors instead of calling the firefighters, in my opinion. Okay. On a secondary note, thank you to our amazing panel. Thank you so much. We've had so many questions come in and a lot more that need answering. Thank you. Okay, really good. Now, um, I agree with that. I echo that entirely. Uh, if you've been inspired today by our panel and you're getting value from the content, then please do leave a comment below and help spread the word by liking and sharing the video online with your social network. Next Monday on the 20th of December, both episodes round off the year with a general Q&A on careers, qualifications, and how to turn those New Year resolutions into meaningful actions. Subscribe to the show and we'll send you a personal summary of what's coming up and how you can join us here on the panel and level up your career with APMG. Thanks very much, everybody, and we'll see you next time.